Hello, you're listening to Sarah Archer and episode 230 of the Speaking Club podcast. I want to start the show with a quote from another basketball player, Stephen Curry. Success is not an accident. Success is actually a choice. I started this podcast for two reasons. Because I want to help people recognise the power of stories and humour in speaking and because I believe it's your message that counts, not the number of ums and ahs you use. There are some organisations that want to create robot speakers. They want you to sacrifice your personality in order to speak perfectly. But I want to let you know that you can be yourself and a sensational speaker. So, if you want to be a speaker that connects and engages authentically through stories, a speaker that gives value as well as a great performance, then welcome home. Hey, how are you doing? I hope you're well. First of all, I want to say a big, big thank you for choosing to listen to The Speaking Club today. This show is a top 1% podcast globally, regularly appearing in the Apple business and management charts, and you are a big part of making that happen. I hope that the episodes you've listened to have helped you on your speaking journey. And if you're brand new to the podcast, welcome. It's brilliant to have you here. If you do get value from the show, I wondered if you'd do me a big favor and help other people find it by leaving an honest rating or review uh, over at ratethispodcast.com slash TSC. There is also a link in the show notes. And you can just or share the podcast with someone you think you will benefit. Go old school. Okie doke. Good enough for that because we need to get on with today's show. Dre Baldwin is my guest today and his approach to life has been one of believing that he is the exception to the rule. Or at least it seems that way. He has achieved what some people would have deemed impossible. Becoming a pro basketball player without playing for his college basketball team. His story is fascinating. As is the way that he thinks about what is possible for him. And the way that he views obstacles that others would see as insurmountable. Today... Dre is the CEO and founder of Work On Your Game, Inc. He's given four TEDx talks and has authored 31 books. His YouTube content has been viewed over 73 million times and his daily Work On Your Game podcast has over 2,200 episodes and 4.5 million listeners. So if you feel you're not achieving your potential and you want to get some inspiration, some new ways of thinking alongside practical tips for managing your life and business goals and to fulfill your ambitions, then you are going to love this. Let's get on with the show. Welcome to the Speaking Club, Trey Baldwin. Thank you for having me, Sarah. I am excited for this conversation. Yeah, I'm really excited too. I've been looking at all of your stuff, reading your story, and there's some brilliant things that you're doing and that you talk about. So I'm looking forward to getting into all of that. The first question I have for you, now I know your story and possibly a lot of people listening might also know your story or can find your story easily. But what I'm interested in is you overcame the odds and you went from having no varsity experience of basketball in college uh, to becoming a pro basketball player mm-hmm. what made you hungry enough 
to achieve that? And how did you do it? Yeah, well, coming out of uh, just coming up, growing up, I was always into sports, always competitive, Sarah. So I played, you know, tried a bunch of different sports, eventually got to basketball, but it was pretty late, relatively speaking. Only one year in high school, but even though I only played one year of high school and I barely played that year, I could still feel that I was still developing. I was still getting better. Whereas a lot of kids, let's say if they had started playing when they were four or five years old, which I did not, by the time they get to age 18, they have pretty much reached their peak. They're as yeah. good as they're going to become. But I had only been playing for three or four years. So I knew I had more development in front of me and I didn't have a lot of experience playing in the actual games. So then going to college, I started to develop a lot more. That's when I really started to feel like I was good. And then to answer your question, what gave me that drive was really just the competitive spirit. I, I'm just a competitor and sports was my vehicle to let that energy out. So that is really the thing that drove me to do it. When I wasn't playing my last year of college, I still had friends on the team. I went to all the games and watched them play. But I always had in my mind, I'm better than these guys, but they're playing and I'm not. So while at the same time I'm competitive, I'm also I'm a person who the people who work with me know, Dre, you keep it real, you're direct, you're objective and you, know, you, you try to be fair. Even if they disagree with me, people always say that to me. So even with myself. I had to say, okay, well, I think I'm better than these guys, but let's look at the situation. Now, you're not playing, they are. So yeah. how do I prove that I'm actually as good as I think I am? I needed to take it to the next level. So the only next level there was, was playing professionally. So I just took those situations, allowed that to fuel my competitiveness, combined with the fact that I was still developing as a player, and then we got what we got, the result. Cool, because I know that you say, you know, you, uh, I think in one of your talks I heard you say, and, it's, and it is true, that when you have a situation like that, you can either wallow in it or give up right. or fight. Because you obviously, it must have been frustrating knowing that you could play better or just not even being given the opportunity. Did you do any wallowing at all or did you just have that instinct straight away to think, I can't, I can't dwell on this, I need to just try and find a solution? No, I didn't do any wallowing at all. The moment when I knew I wasn't going to be on the team anymore in college, my mindset immediately shifted to, okay, now what do I do with this situation? All right. I knew I wasn't going to be playing anymore. It wasn't even my last year of college. I still had a whole year of college coming up. So this is a, a long-term thing. This is like a long play here. So I really had to just shift my mindset and figure out what am I going to do or what can I do? My first idea was maybe I could go to a different school and play there. But when it became clear that wasn't going to work, then it was okay. Now, how am I going to make this situation work? And I had to really just play the long game, keep working on my game, keep developing my skills. And then once college was over, then I had to figure out a whole other situation, which was how do I actually get into professional basketball? Because that that world is not it's not like there's one you know, set of standards. It's not like passing the, the bar exam where everybody knows exactly what you have to do to get in. Like You have to go find the information. And most of the information on how to play overseas ball was created by me. So yeah. imagine, what I was, imagine what I had to work with. I didn't have anything. I, I wrote the books on it. I mean, there are more people talking about it now, but they're all basically using my stuff as a blueprint. Let's put it that way. So like, that's pretty mature and wise mm. for someone... Uh, you know, which still relatively young age, had something happened earlier in your life that had given you that sort of, you know, approach or wisdom to mm. sort of react that way? 
Uh, I think it's just my wiring. It's just the way that I think and the way that I look at things. At the same time, I've always been, I'm a big reader. I'm a writer, but I'm also a big reader. So uh-huh. I've always been into, my mother's an educator, so she's big into having my sister and me uh, reading and writing from young, before we even started school. So by the time we got to school, we were ahead of our, you know, our AIDS level and things like that, our grade level when it comes to reading. So I was always into books. So I've always been into personal development. Didn't even know it was personal development till later, but I've always been into that stuff. So I would probably say through all the stuff that I read and consumed combined with my wiring was just, I got to look at this situation objectively because, and, and actually to give another answer to your question here, Sarah, I've always been a person who thought that way. Like when everybody in the room is thinking one way and I'm like, wait a minute, there's a, there's a flaw in this logic. Many people might see it, but a lot of people won't say it because socially you don't want to be that person in the group that's like kind of going against the grain. But I've never had a problem being that person because I always knew I had the ability to articulate why I'm going against the grain. I've always had that ability so I can explain it. Uh, here's yeah, I have a different opinion from the other five people here, but here's why I have a different opinion. If you listen to what I'm saying, then how could you possibly argue with that if we're all just being objective and logical? But we know human beings are not objective and logical. So that's I never had the, that challenge of um, not wanting to do different than everyone else. It strikes me, and I will get back on track in terms of the questions that I wanted to ask you, but like it mm-hmm. strikes me that you have always been driven and ambitious and and quite a serious guy did you like did you party at all college were you quite like as long as oh, as yeah. well as having this sort of really self-aware sort of mature side was there also did you were you the teenager were you the young young adult as well oh absolutely so college <laughs> is my my partying years yeah so that's <laughs> that's really the only years that i party because as soon as i got out of college I didn't have any money and I wasn't in the environment, the college environment anymore. So there was nowhere to party and I didn't have the resources to party. But in college, you don't have to have any resources. You just had to know people. And yeah. that was, you know, I tell, I tell people all the time, rarely does anybody even ask me about college anymore. But I, in my earlier years, when I had first got out of school, especially in basketball, they always ask like, what schools you play at? But I tell people my major, technically my degree is in business with a focus in management and marketing, but my real major was basketball and socializing. That's what I always <laughs> tell people. That's, that's really what I did. And if I would, if I went back to college, I tell people all the time, I wouldn't do anything different academically. I would just talk to more girls and go to more parties. That's what I would do <laughs> if I went back to school. Yeah. Right. And I, obviously you're a pro basketball player and I know there may be people listening that would kill me if I didn't take the opportunity to ask you about some of the best memories of being a pro basketball player, because I know we're here to talk about other stuff, but that, you know, Mm. that's a big important part of why we're here in a sense, in terms of what you did and what you learned. So what, what was good for you? What did you enjoy most? What sticks in your mind? Man, all of it. (laughs) There was absolutely, I mean, you really have to think about being a, a professional athlete, especially when you're coming from your home country or your hometown and you're traveling the world just based off of, first of all, traveling the world, period. Most people from where I'm from never leave the, for the most part, they don't leave the city or the state, let alone the country. A lot of the people who I grew up with don't even have a passport, so they couldn't leave even if they wanted to, right? So, and then 
just the fact that you're doing it because of your abilities to play a sport. So it's one thing if you're going on family vacations, that just means you can afford a plane ticket. Is another thing when you're doing it based off of the fact that you have a job that 99% of people cannot get even if they wanted to. And that's the, so there is no, there really is no downside as far as compared to what else I could have been doing, sir, there's no downside to being a professional athlete. Now, are there challenges? Are there long days? Yes, in any job. But just looking at it big picture, all of it. So, I mean, the travel, uh, the fact that you're not paying for the travel, they're paying, the team, whoever, your employer is paying for the travel. You are seeing places that you otherwise never would have seen. Uh, the fact that everybody who knows you and sees you, especially in these other countries, especially when you're a, black, a tall black guy walking around in you know, Europe, they know you're a basketball player. Like, what other reason would you be there by yourself? And there'd be one thing I have my, some kids and a wife, but I'm by myself. Like, this guy has to be on a basketball team. And you're a, you're a star in those places. You're making a living, literally playing a kid's game. And there were times I would even tell myself that. Let's say I'm having a, a rough time with the coach on my team or something like that, and I'm getting annoyed with the situation. I'm not playing as much as I should in the games or the team's losing. But I'll remind myself, like, hey, you're in Europe playing basketball for a living. What are all your friends doing? What are all your family members doing? They're looking at you like you're the one living out a movie. So yeah. who are you? Who are you even going to complain to? Like, I can only talk to other basketball players. Like, I can't. <laughs> I can't talk to somebody who's back home working at you know, a factory. You know, what are they? How are they going to relate to me? They can't. So, to answer your question, the best thing about it was all of it. It was a great experience. I wouldn't trade it for anything. And yeah, I mean, there's there's nothing bad about it compared to the average job. Even being an entrepreneur, even what we do, basketball is a, a better job. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. And I guess you said there was a time though, and it and it comes out in things that I've heard you, you know, I've heard interviews with you and vi watched videos and so on. And there's a point that came which you had, I don't know if it was an aha moment, I'll describe it as an aha moment, that uh, as a player that you realized you didn't have any control. And mm -hmm. at that point, and what made you realize that? And then what did you decide to do next to take back control? Great question. So what happened was it was, I started playing in 2005. So this is around 2008, 2009, around this mm -hmm. time period. I, in a way overseas basketball works, a lot of people don't notice, but your contracts are pretty much every year you have to get with a new team and sign a new contract. Mm -hmm. Even if you stay with the same team, you have to sign a, a new contract. Whereas, I don't, are you a big sports fan? Oh, I do like sports, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So like the NBA, the NFL, you'll hear the yeah. player sign a contract, but it'll be for three years, five years. It'll be a, a yeah. long contract. Overseas is basically every season is a new contract. So every year, I'm, that's how I was able to play in so many different countries because every year I was on, if I had to find a new job. So one year around this time, 2008, 2009, I did not have a job and I'm waiting for my agent to call me because my agent's the one who's allegedly you know working on my behalf to get me a job he wasn't calling the phone was not ringing the inbox wasn't lighting up and i'm sitting here like man um now at this point i'm getting into my mid to late 20s it's one thing when you're 23 you don't have a job and i'm, I'm 23 i don't have a job so what but when you're 27 and you don't have a job now you're starting to like okay now you're starting to think about the future all right if and there was a question i don't know who said this but probably many people have said it they said if you stay in the same situation that you're in now, or you allow it to perpetuate for the next five years, where will you be in five years? 
So it's just a good question to give all of us perspective at any time. So I said, all right, where will I be in five years if I allow this to keep happening? Because this wasn't the first time this happened, sir, that I didn't have a job, but the season was happening. Like people were playing, but I was not. I was home waiting for the phone to ring. So I said, okay, what if this keeps happening? I don't have control over my situation. And it just so happens that I just finished reading Tim Ferriss's book, The Four Hour Work Week. Oh, oh, yeah, I'm sure you're, yeah. you're familiar with yeah, yeah. Right. So in that book, Tim gave some, he was really talking about how to create a, a lifestyle business through the internet. And there were some principles that he just shared in there that I said made a lot of sense to me. And I referred back to mentally, I had read Robert Kiyosaki's Rich Dad, Poor Dad back in yeah. college. Right. So I took the combination of Robert Kiyosaki's concepts of just about understanding how entrepreneurship works and how business works and his cash flow quadrant and how people are treated differently, uh, the way they do things financially. So I had that in my mind. I knew I would be an entrepreneur after basketball, but I was still in basketball. So I wasn't thinking this was after basketball, but I'm like, uh, it might be after basketball now. It might be over. <laughs> and then I read Tim Ferriss and Tim Ferriss was basically like the, the new age version of Rich Dad Poor Dad. This, this is kind of what it was, the new millennium version of that book. So I combined the principles from both of those guys' uh, writings and at this time, it also happens this confluence of events that we had this new thing coming around on the Internet that we now know as social media. It was just starting to blossom at this time. So this is Facebook had just opened up. Anybody could get on it. We had Twitter coming around. Instagram wasn't here yet. YouTube was still pretty new. I was on YouTube, but it was still pretty new. You couldn't make any money from it. And that's when I started really just thinking about, all right, this thing that I have on the Internet, because I had a presence. I had a blog, a website, and you know, my videos. And I thought, all right, why don't I just start putting out more material? Why don't, write, why don't I write a little bit more about my experiences? Because I'm playing overseas, so I have a unique angle because I'm doing something that other people don't do. So I started writing more about overseas ball. I started putting videos on YouTube more consistently. Then Google bought YouTube, and they said, well, we'll give you some ad revenue if you let us put ads on your videos. So anybody who's listening who doesn't remember there was a time and Sarah will tell you there was a time you could watch YouTube all day and never see an advertisement but that time's over but back then you could do it so that's when I started putting more videos on YouTube and uh, really started to make my name on the internet so the interesting thing is Sarah when I go out here in I'm in Miami in the United States when I'm around and people recognize me Nobody recognizes me from playing professional basketball for 10 years. Everybody recognizes me from YouTube. So it's just funny that people know me from YouTube, but nobody knows me from my actual professional career. You know, and you do all that work to become a pro athlete, but nobody remembers it because you're overseas. Like, Americans don't watch overseas ball. So you were right. building up your presence, basically. Yeah. So let me tell you the aha moment. So from Tim Ferriss's book, he talked about, here's how you can test out a product idea. Cause he's like, cause his story was about how he was, you read his book, right? The yeah, four definitely. Yeah, yeah. And he was talking about how he was running a supplement company, but it was running him into the ground and he just needed to figure out how to offload a lot of things. And then he said in the book, somewhere in the book, it might've been on his blog as well. He just said, well, what if you don't have a company, but you want to live this lifestyle? How do you get started? And he gave this example of how to test out a product idea. In very simple terms, it was you can go on this site, a site called Weebly, still exists today. You can get basically a free hosting platform. You can make a little simple one, two page website. Put up on the web page, here's the name of my product, here's what it does, here's what you get, here's how much it costs. And you put a price, like a button that says buy this product for five dollars. When they click the button, it goes to another page that says, Hey, this product is under construction, but as soon as it's ready, we'll email you and we'll sell it to you. And put your email address in right here. He said, do that, put that two page website together. And if you get people, and then he said, go to Google and you buy some Google ads. 
Now, again, the full disclaimer, everybody, is, this is 2008. So you could spend $5 on Google ads and actually get some market research. Now you cannot do that. It would be maybe 50 or 100. But back then you could spend $5 and get results. So I put $5 in Google ads and people started putting their email address in on this page. Now, mind you, note, Sarah, that I said right there on the site. So my site that I created was for basketball training programs because I already had all these basketball players watching me on YouTube. So they were saying to me, Drake, can you make a program that shows us how we can practice how you practice? And I said, all right, fine, but I'm going to charge for it. And they said, okay, as long as it doesn't cost too much. Now I knew I had an audience of 13 to 24 year olds, basketball players. So, and I don't want them to, this to be a hard buying decision. So I started creating these products for $4 and 99 cents us dollars. And I put on this website, I made up a name of the program, I called it hoop handbook like for basketball. And I made two programs, a dribbling program and a shooting program, how to practice dribbling the ball, how to practice shooting the ball. And I just made a simple description of what you're going to get in the program. And I put the little button that says buy this program for $4.99. And if they clicked on the button, that means they know what the product is. They know how much it costs. So they are, this is a willing buyer. Yeah. And then I started collecting their email addresses and people start putting in their emails. So I said, okay. Going back to what Tim talked about, he said, if you get email addresses, that means you have a viable product and you should start selling it. You should go create it and start selling it. So that's what I did. And this is within like, all this happened in 24 to 48 hours. I, once I get the idea, as long as I had the resources, I'll act on it. So I did these things and I put this program out and I put a video on YouTube and said, introducing Hoop Handbook. And I told people I have a shooting program, a dribbling program. It costs $4.99. If you want to buy it, go to this link and put the link in the description. And that night, somebody, I got an email. Uh, I don't know if you ever had the BlackBerry phone. You remember the BlackBerry yeah, yeah, before did, the iPhone? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so on the BlackBerry, at least the one I had, the last one I had, whenever you got an email or a text, there was a little red light that would start blinking on the phone. So I remember the red light started blinking and I checked it and there was an email that said, congratulations, you made a sale. And I went, I had to go to my computer and I had to actually, because somebody bought a product, I had to add the product as an attachment and email it to the person because I didn't know there was such thing as auto delivery where somebody buys a digital product, they immediately get access. I didn't know that existed. And for a week, every day I would wake up kind of anxious, like, or I hope nobody's mad because they bought something and they're waiting for me to email them the product. So after a week, I started looking it up, like, is there a way to do this? And I found out auto delivery was a thing. So that was my aha moment. It's a long story to get to the aha moment, nice. but that's how I got it. And when I made that first sale, Sarah, I said to myself, this is what I'm going to be doing the rest of my life is I can take my, what we now know as intellectual property. I didn't know that was a thing, but I can take my intellectual property and I can package it up. Made, I made that from nothing, from scratch, and I can sell it. I knew I couldn't jump and dunk and play basketball forever, but I can trade on my knowledge forever. So that was the aha moment for me. I continued to play pro basketball, actually. My, I did finally get a call. I kept playing pro till 2015, but it was in 2009 that I had the aha moment that I knew what I would be doing, like, long term which was that that's brilliant i didn't realize i'd forgotten that tim ferris had done the monetize before you make it before yes. like way before that's brilliant that's really cool yes he did yeah. excellent and that is yeah for anyone listening that is the best way to do it don't spend hours creating a product you, you don't know if there's any demand for do it like right. that and just test and see so you started building your email list years and years and years ago that's right then. that's really cool that's right and so you decided that you were doing so the, the hoop handbook, you were doing basketball training videos for your audience at that time. 
When did mm-hmm. you decide to make the switch to focus more on, I don't know, I, I feel you've made a switch to focus more on bi- mindset and business over basketball skills. When did you decide to do that and why? Yes, I did make the switch. That's a good observation. And how that happened was around that same time, actually. So this 2008 through about 2011 period was pivotal for me as a professional. What happened was these basketball players who watched me on YouTube, I started to really build a a solid audience of ball players that to this day, I haven't played basketball since 2015. But to this day, I still every day hear from players who grew up watching me on YouTube and these players they started to learn about my background because after they watched a few videos and saw this guy knows the stuff they would just ask well who are you where'd you play where do you play now you know what's your background they just wanted to know who was this person who's teaching me how to play basketball because again I'm not LeBron James or Kobe so nobody knew me they just knew I'm this guy on YouTube so I started telling bits and pieces of my story in certain videos and replying to comments and things like that so when people heard it they started asking me about mindset because they're like, wait a minute, you only played one year of high school and then you kept playing. Like you kept, you tried out again the last year after you got cut the first three years or you walked on to play D3 college and then you hustled your way into playing professional basketball or you're here right now jobless in pro basketball, but yet you keep going to the gym and working out every day because I'm putting the videos up every day. So they're like, all right, so you're a pro basketball player. You don't have a job right now, but you keep going to the gym and working out just to be ready just in case that call comes in. So people were really impressed by the consistency. They saw how consistent I was and it was like, they, it was abnormal to them. Cause they're like most people in those situations that I just described, most basketball players who get cut from the high school team the first two years don't show up the third year. Or most college players who have to walk on at a division three school have no, I, they have no visions of grandeur that they're gonna make it as a pro basketball player. They're like, I'm gonna play in college and then it's over and I'll go be a, an accountant, right? They're, they're not thinking they're gonna make it as a pro basketball player. They're not even, not even dreaming about it. Let alone they're gonna try, even try to do it, let alone do they actually do it. So all the things that I had done, to me, these things seemed normal. I'm like, all right, well, you got cut three times, but it's four years in high school. So why not? If you're going to get cut, just try the fourth time. Why not? If you get cut, you get cut. So what? Are you playing D3 college? And when you, so a lot of D3 players at that level, they just don't look at themselves the same as a Division One player. And I played basketball with Division One guys when I was in college. And the D3 guys would look at themselves like they just, they minimize themselves. Like, I'm just a D3 player. I'm not, I'm nobody in basketball, but these guys, they're somebody. And so I never looked at myself like that. I never looked at myself as, uh, believe it or not, in sports and even in business, Sarah, I never looked at myself as an underdog. I, I don't even like the the idea. I never looked at myself as a, as a person who I'm this underdog and everybody's underestimating me. I looked at myself like, we're all players and when we get in the game we'll find out who's better than who that's the whole point that's the reason why we have the games right is is not about uh, this person supposed to be better on paper is we'll play the game and let's find out so when people heard about my story they were just again they were impressed by it because it just didn't seem normal to them but it seemed normal to me so they would ask me things like you know why do you come to the gym every day to work out what keeps you going to come to the gym i mean they got the concept but why do you do it or how do you get the confidence to go out there and perform you know, when you only have one chance, like a pro basketball tryout or high school tryouts, you got that one day. And, at, and pro basketball is like a meat market. It's kind of like many people haven't experienced it, but if you think like a modeling casting call, yes, it, it's like yeah. that, it's a, it's a meat market. Like everybody's not getting picked, but everybody's trying to get picked, yeah. right? So how do you show up and perform in those kind of environments when the pressure is so high? Or 
why'd you keep trying? Now, you had all these setbacks just from a little bit that I've shared here today. How would you keep going? How did you, you know, not beat yourself up or not quit, not whine, not complain and take ownership of your own situations? Because every time that I came up short and I would tell these stories on YouTube, I would always bring it back to myself. I would always take ownership. I never said, well, the coach was hating on me or the teammates wouldn't give me the ball or the, the kind of excuses that a lot of people like to give themselves. Because as I told you earlier, Sarah, I've always been a person who tries to be as objective as possible, even about myself, even with myself. So when I'm not, when I was in college and I wasn't getting a lot of playing time, yeah, I was mad at the coach. But at the same time, I had to say, all right, what is the coach seeing that's causing him to not put me in a game? And I had to take ownership of that situation. I couldn't blame because if I just blame the coach and it's his fault, now what can I do? I have no power because now I'm putting all the power in his hands. I had to put the power in my hands. So I've always been like that. And as I kept explaining these kind of things to these people, they said, man, I, I guess it was, again, this is just the way that I think. So this all is normal to me. So when they heard me say it, these people would be like, wow, I never thought about it like that. This was like groundbreaking to them to even hear somebody talk like this, especially a guy who's a basketball player. I look like them. I walk like them. I dress like them. I talk like them. They never heard anybody who looked like me talk like that, especially a basketball player. So they could already relate to me on the court. But then when I started talking, they said, man, this guy can teach me something off the court. So that's, and that's, as a side note, the reason why a lot of these ball players still remember me now, because a lot of the stuff they got from me wasn't basketball, it was mental. That was how I started talking about, to answer your question finally. Every Monday, I started making this video on YouTube called The Weekly Motivation. And it was simply, a, a three to five minute little selfie video. This is before we had cameras on our phones. So I actually had a camera <laughs> selfie video where I would just talk about a mindset uh, principle. And I did this just three to five minutes, just anything that came off the top of my head. But I had plenty to say, obviously, because I did the weekly motivation every week for 400 weeks in a row, every Monday. And that's where I started to draw a non-basketball audience into my world. So these people who didn't play ball started finding these weekly motivation videos and they would say to me, Dre, look, I'm following your stuff on YouTube, not because I'm trying to learn how to dunk a basketball or I'm not trying to make the NBA. I'm following you because the way that you break down the mental game and those weekly motivations, that stuff applies to everybody. Anybody can use that stuff. So that's how I knew, uh, Sarah, that. And also, again, I'm always thinking long term here. And also because of my background and the fact that I had these gaps in my career, it's times where I didn't have a job. I knew at any moment that could be over. So I was already thinking to myself halfway through my career that this is what I'm going to do when I'm done playing basketball. I can take this piece, the mindset piece, and I can talk to anybody in the world about this. I am not limited to just basketball players. So that's how I knew what I was going to do next. But I started doing that before I, I was still playing. I was still doing weekly motivation. So that was 2010. I kept playing until 2015. So you were digging yeah. the well before you were thirsty, as they say, basically. That's right. Excellent. That's right. And I love what you said there, because I think a lot of people, especially, it seems more so these days. I don't know, maybe it's just more prevalent, but so many people do blame others and become a victim. Mm -hmm. You know, and I've done That's it right. before myself. And it, it's... But you're right, it gives your power away to change the situation if that's it's right. someone else. You know, that's that's brilliant. And it's amazing that you were so like it's un it is unusual to be so self-aware and so um 
I don't know if objectivity is the word you used yes. to be able to see this stuff, but it is unusual, uh, especially at the age that you were, because normally these things hit you when you're around 40 and you've had a bit of self-development at work. Uh, they put right. you on a course or whatever, and suddenly you're like, why didn't I know this stuff when I was younger? But you did, which is right. brilliant. You know, that's cool. Okay. Thank you. So in those videos, it sounds like you've always been vulnerable and authentic and with your audience. And I just wanted to ask you, what do you think is the right balance of sharing successes and failures and why with your audience? That's a good question, Sarah. And I think the I don't even try to strike a balance. I personally don't. What I try to do is what I try to do as well is what I call work on your game is give people the game. And the game is understanding how things are actually working and how you fit within what's working. So that's the thing for me. So I do share successes and things that are working for me, but I will also share, okay, it's not even necessary that I share challenges. What I try to do is even if things that work out for me, mm -hmm. usually I try to find an angle for how they work and how can my audience benefit from this? Because yeah. it's one thing if I tell you I did something and created some success, but what is that actually doing for anybody who's, who hears about it? Nothing. Really. So what I try to do is find the angle that someone who's not me can see what I did because that gives me that kind of gets their attention. All right. This guy achieved that. All right. I, that's notable. And they can be you know, excited about it or it's cool that you did that. Then I always try to find an angle. Uh, how can somebody else learn from this? Uh, how does this make sense? What can you do with this information? So even when I wrote my book, Work on Your Game, or I tell my story, like, yeah, I played professional basketball and I came from this background. I made it pro. Here's how I did it. And here's how you can extract what I did and how you can use it in your own life. That's always been my angle. It's just the way that I always thought. Even when I first got on the internet, I always had this understanding that it's not just about me telling you how great I am. It's about me showing you how you can take what I've done or things that I didn't do and how you can use them yourself. How I can, how can I translate my experience so that it can become your experience so that's always been my angle and there are a, a select few people who can get away with just talking about what they did that's like you no know, beyonce magic johnson you know, <laughs> obama if you're that famous then you can just talk about yourself and people will just applaud you just because but i'm not quite that level so i gotta do a little bit of extra work and extract the value for people yeah, I think I think you could be a bit of a Tony Robbins in the making, though, Dre. I don't know. I'm getting a sense. I've got a <laughs> feeling. Got a feeling about you. Now, I wanted to talk to you. I loved uh, one of the TED TEDx talks that you did, um, mm. and one of your sort of principal things is like this concept of the third day, and yes. I wanted you to share about that and the significance of the third day uh, with with the speaking yeah. club audience. Okay, so I'll tell you where that initially came from was uh, YouTube. So this is the way I, a lot of people know me from YouTube is that I would be in this empty gym in Miami, which is actually, I can see it off my balcony here, but it was just an empty gym I would go to every morning and do my workouts and I had my camera and that's how everybody knew me from that gym. And the thing is about that gym is that it's a beautiful gym and it's a city owned gym, which means this is not like you no know, Equinox or a lifetime fitness where they charge you an arm and a leg. The membership was like $10 a, a month. So anybody could afford to go to this gym. The thing is when I would be in there working out, there'd be nobody else in there. And the main reason is because I would just go early in the morning. Nobody, I guess people didn't like getting up early, but people would always ask me, they would say, Dre, 
why is there nobody in the gym when you're working out? They would guess. They would say, well, do you own a gym? Do you rent out a gym? No. Do you go at some weird hours that other people can't get in? How is it that you're always in a gym by yourself? Because a lot of these ball players, you know, I'm a generation older than them. So a lot of them had a challenge of, well, I live in some town where there isn't a gym or there's one basketball court and it's outside. But when it's snowing outside, I can't play basketball or it's far away from me or there is a gym in my neighborhood. But every kid in the neighborhood goes to the gym. So I can't even practice because I can't get any space to myself. So when they saw me in this empty gym, they're like, how does this guy have an empty gym? I would love to have an empty gym. How do you get it? Dre? So I made this video. This is uh, 2014. And I said, the reason why my gym is empty is because of this concept and I introduced the third day. So yeah. to explain it to everyone here is the third day is like the first day that you're doing something. Take somebody who's listening to this who maybe they took some time off from working out, but they decide they want to get in shape now. First day in the gym, you're really excited. You're, you, know, you got some new workout gear. You signed up with a trainer. You signed up for a set of boot camp classes. You got your uh, new sneakers. You feel good. Now, the workout is tough because you haven't worked out in a while and the trainer you know, kicks your butt. But you drag yourself home and you say to yourself, hey, I'm doing this. Now, the second day is a little bit tougher because you have all the fatigue from day one combined with the fact that you're still not in quote unquote game shape yet because you haven't been working out. Now you're doing it two days in a row. So this workout is going to be even tougher. But at the same time, it's still pretty new. I mean, the second day that you do something is still new. The newness has not worn off yet. The shine is still there, still smells new. You push yourself through that workout. The trainer pushes you even harder because now you got the fatigue built up. So you're not as sharp on the second day as you were on the first day, but pretty close. You drag yourself home and you look in the bathroom mirror and you say with just a, a little bit less enthusiasm, hey, I'm doing this. And about a third day, Sarah, things have already started to change. By the third day, your body and mind are having a difference of opinion because <laughs> you want to do the workout, uh, but your body is like, wait a minute. All right. This, uh, this is not what we've been doing for the last five years. Like now, now this is what we're going to now we're going to work out every day. Your whole body is sore. Now you have no physical energy. Mentally, you're not you're not you want to work out. You're telling yourself you're supposed to work out. This is when you say you're supposed to. I should work out, but you don't really feel right doing it. Uh, you don't want to speak to the person at the front desk at the gym when you work when you walk in. You might get there about 10 minutes later than you did on day one and day two. Everything is just harder on that third day. The third day, and this is the same thing I explained to the basketball players. The third day is not about the gym. It's not about working out. It can be this happens everywhere. This happens at in businesses. It happens as an entrepreneur. It happens when you are working for a company. It happens as a parent. It happens in, in relationships, in anything. And the third day is the situation when the newness has worn off, the novelty of the situation is completely gone, and all that's left is you and the actual work that you have to do. And the, the challenge for a lot of people, the reason why a lot of people can start things but don't follow through is because it's easy to start something because everything's fun when you start out. The first day is fun everywhere. It's when you get into the routine. When you realize, okay, all right, the newness is gone. I'm used to this because human beings, we're very adaptable creatures. We get used to anything, all right, no matter how amazing it may seem. Like you might look at something on TV and like, man, it'd be amazing to go there. But if you live there, it wouldn't feel amazing after about a month because you've been there for so long. Like you get used to it. So the third day is not necessarily the one, two, three that day. And it's not even the situation. Third day is much more so the decision that you make in that moment when you realize, okay, this is normal to me now. It's habit, it's routine. Do you still show up with the same energy? 
and can you keep doing it? That's what the third day is about. Actually, it's really interesting. I, I might just offer one distinction there. So you, you've got the novelty, and then the novelty wears off, and it becomes uh, a mundane. And then mm-hmm. you get a routine. Because I think once you've got a routine, potentially it's easier to keep to. But it's that, it's that middle right. bit, isn't it, between the novelty and the routine, that mundane slog That's bit. Right. <laughs> yep. That's the bit you're talking about. And, and so yes. how do you motivate yourself? Like, Where did you get the discipline from? Was it just a focusing on a goal or what, what was it? It's a good question. So you guys, two different things there that I think are uh, not exactly the same. You said, how do you motivate yourself? Where do you get the discipline? So it's two cool. different things. Discipline and motivation. I, I like to draw a clear line between the two because a lot of people understand it. Everybody understands the discipline. Not everybody has it, but they understand it. And everybody gets motivation. So often when people have a challenge with discipline, they believe incorrectly that they need to get themselves motivated so that they can be more disciplined. That's a failing strategy. This is the reason why most people don't have discipline, even though everybody understands motivation. I mean, how much motivation is there on YouTube right now? All right, millions, but yeah. people still aren't disciplined. The reason is motivation it can quickly wear off and it can, it can go away very easily. And anything that motivates you today, again, it's like the third day, you, you use that thing enough, you press that button enough, eventually it doesn't have the same effect. So when it comes to getting the discipline, what you need instead of motivation is you need what I call an anchor. And the discipline anchor is the thing that you have decided on or that you want or that you wish to achieve that is, has a strong enough pull that you're willing to be disciplined in order to get it. Hmm. So that's what the anchor is about. So for me, my anchor was always my competitiveness and it was competing against the situation or competing against a person or competing against a, a straw man idea. I, I could just make up a story in my head to get me that, you know, that, that jump that I needed, that energy that I needed to keep myself going. That was the anchor for me to keep going on top of the fact that going back to the competitiveness, it's kind of like circular reasoning here that I knew that if I could get past the third day and just stay consistent and keep showing up, I would create such a gap between me and whoever else was trying to compete against me that they couldn't catch up. So it's almost like the, the third day became the drive to keep me showing up on the third day. So the discipline actually becomes the motivation because you stay, you stick to the discipline. Eventually you don't want to break it. You want to stay in that habit. You want to stay in that routine. And then you get to, uh, Sarah, to follow up on what you added there is what we call the fourth day. So the fourth day is what comes after the third day. So it's like you get over that hump. It's kind of like you climb up a mountain, you get to the top. Now you go down the mountain. I mean, you still have to go down it, but it's easy to go down. It's easy to go down a mountain. It is to go, is to go up it, right? Because now you don't even you don't even have to press the gas pedal. Just let the car cruise, and it goes. So that's how you get to the fourth day. Is you have to find that that anchor that will keep you going, and then that routine and that habit will run on its own energy. Eighty five percent of what we do is habitual and unconscious. That's brilliant. Yes, that's. Uh two things that sort of jumped to mind. And I know you've mentioned the compound effect before and in terms of that that effort building to create that difference and then wanting right. to maintain that difference. And I know Jerry Seinfeld did something similar with his writing where he had like a, he didn't want to break yeah. the chain in terms of right, the, the sort of writing day. days. Yeah, that's really right. cool. Excellent. Mm. Now, the other thing that I love about what you, you talk about is, um, and this can be, you know, especially with women, I think this is an issue. Because 
in some ways, I think women don't want to show confidence or are scared about being overconfident. Now, you say you can't, mm. you can't be overconfident. Can you tell me a bit right. more about that? Yeah, I think uh, you might have seen that in one of my other TED, uh, yeah. TED Talks. Yeah, so too much confidence is not your problem. So that yeah. one, that idea initially got sparked from, if you can't guess, YouTube. So I was uh, <laughs> making these, so I made so many videos on YouTube, that every principle, every book, everything came, cool. initially started as a video I made on YouTube. So that one came from me really talking to athletes because a lot of athletes would have these confidence challenges because, I mean, you just think about it in sports. It's one thing to you know be on your, your podcast in front of a microphone and a camera. It's another thing when every time you're at work, you're in an arena with, you know, you have on a, a tank top and shorts and everybody can see everything you're doing, yeah. right? And that it can be, it can lead to performance anxiety and stress. And a lot of athletes would ask me a lot of questions about how can I be confident on the court? I know I can do these things, but I'm not doing them. How can I get my confidence up? So I talked about confidence from a million different angles, but one of the things that I came up with is, because a lot of times when I would talk about confidence, here's what would happen is somebody would say, Dre, I get it. I get how you're talking about how to build confidence and I'll follow your process. The challenge is, Dre, I wanna make sure that I don't become too confident. What can I do to make sure I don't become too confident? I don't want it to go overboard. I don't wanna go overboard in my confidence. And the thing that I said to them is, I used a metaphor that uh, a young lady had came to me once and she was asking me, hey, can you show me some exercises that I can do? She wanted to work out. And she knew I was an athlete. So she said, can you show me some exercises that I can do in the gym? Because we were in a, a gym. She said, like, can you show me some exercises I can do on my own so that when you're not around, I can just work out by myself. I just need a routine. Just show me how the machines work and how to do the movements and all that stuff. I said, all right, fine. I'll show you how to use the machine so you can work out on your own. She said, wait a minute, Drake. Before we get started, let me tell you something. I don't want to be one of those girls with all the, the big muscles that has so many muscles that she looks like a man. That's what she said to me. And I said to her, well, wait a minute. first of all, how about you learn how to turn the treadmill on first before you worry about having too much <laughs> muscles? Right? You don't even know, you don't even know your way, you don't even know your way to the gym. You're worried about having too many muscles. Right? Let's, let's not go, let's not get ahead, of, put the cart before the horse. All right? So, and so I use that metaphor to say the same thing to a lot of athletes. And then I realized that this message applies to all people is that a lot of people have this challenge of, oh, I don't want to be too confident. Well, wait a minute, you don't have any confidence. Uh, you have, you're at zero. Uh, so you're not, you're worried about going past 100. Like, let's get to 50 first. Uh, you, that is the least of your problems is to get some confidence. And when I really got to thinking about it, it, it became an aha moment for me. I'm like, most people are trying so hard to not go too far with confidence, yet they don't have any to begin with. But they're worried about going too far. This is like the same, the person who's never lifted weights, but they say, I don't want to have my muscles be too big. It makes no sense. Or a broke person saying, well, I don't want to get too rich because then people will hate you and you'll have problems. Yeah. I'm like, wait a minute. Why don't we just get you, get you a minimum wage job first? And then we worry about you having too much money. Okay. <laughs> so, and this, this is, and it's a thing with human beings. And I think it just goes back to the wiring of humans is that 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 deep seated fear from back in the caveman days that we are we're self-regulating so hard. It's kind of like the metaphor that I use is driving with the emergency brake on like the, the car is moving, but you're grinding against yourself so hard 
you're slowing yourself down from even getting to where you want to get to. And I tell people having too much confidence is the least of your problems, because tell me who, who have you ever seen who had too much confidence? Name a person. They can't even answer <laughs> who has too much confidence. And if they think of someone, usually as someone who might be you no know, boastful or brash about their accomplishments, but usually they're a very high performing individual. And I say, yeah. could you even imagine being like that for five minutes, let alone a lifetime? So too much confidence is not the problem that most people have. Most people have a problem of not having enough. And I suggest you do whatever you consider to be too far with confidence, go there and just see how it feels or just experience it. And if, if it's too much for you, then you can go back to your comfort zone. But as long as you just try it out and see how it feels. And most people have never even done that, and, but they're trying so hard to not go too far. So that it always uh, bemused me when people would say, well, Dre, yeah, I wanna be confident, but I won't be too confident. Yeah. compared to what yeah yeah it's that fear of being like judged isn't it and cocky is that sort right. of sticking your head above the parapet but uh exactly yeah yeah absolutely no yeah. that's cool so i think i read in your bio that you used to be shy and i mm -hmm. wondered how did that affect you when you started to do those youtube videos and put yourself out there yeah, so I used to be, I was kind of like a, a geek or a nerd in elementary school. So this was up through like age 10. So this is when, uh, this is back when being a geek or a nerd and having tight clothes were not cool. But now actually being a geek or a nerd and having tight clothes is actually cool. That's, mm -hmm. So everything has flipped. The geeks and the nerds are like the coolest guys in the room now. <laughs> but it wasn't like that in the, in the 90s. All right, so that is where that's where that came from and i as i used to wear bifocal glasses i wear contact lenses now so and there used to be this tv show in uh in the usa it was called family matters you ever heard of it yeah yeah i have yeah okay you remember the character steve urkel yes i do yeah okay so i was like that when i was in elementary school so that's when I was, I just didn't have the confidence and, it, and shy is kind of like a, um, a fluid thing because you could be shy in one room, but then really the, the life of the party in the next room. So I was, I just didn't have the confidence in myself. But then as I started to play more sports, I found confidence through sports and you know, lost the glasses and start wearing contact lenses, more confidence in t talking to females. And then uh, getting into high school, as I got more athletic and all of that stuff, that's where the, that's where the, my confidence grew even more. And I was starting to get some, some attention slightly when it came to sports. And as far as speaking, you know, I've always, like I said, always been into reading and writing. I didn't do a lot of, didn't do any public speaking in high school and in college, not even that much. But then as my sports success kept growing, I was just getting more attention from people, period, socially, especially in college, not so much in high school, but in college, I was just getting more attention socially just because I was one of the 12 guys on the basketball team and I'm talking to more girls and you no know, go away to college and you're partying and you're, you have to socialize. That's what I did. I majored in so socializing, not sociology, <laughs> but socializing. So I did so much of it. I just got, I realized that I had a, a good way of putting words together. The more I just got experience just conversing and talking with people so when it came to the the youtube and the public speaking and stuff when the internet came around or let's say the internet that we have now internet 2.0 blogging and social media i knew it was for me as soon as i seen it as soon as i saw it sarah i knew it was for me because i said i can take my ideas and thoughts and perspectives i can 
write them down or speak them and put it out and random people can find it and listen to me. I said, this is perfect. This is exactly what I, this is exactly what I want to be doing. So when YouTube came out and I started talking on camera, again, it just came naturally to me. It was just natural for me. Like when I, I can talk to a camera the same way I would talk, I'm talking to you right now. And it yeah. doesn't feel any different than if I was talking to a human being standing right next to me. I can talk the exact same way. A lot of people have ch- trouble with that, but I never did. It just came to me naturally. And I think it's just a, I think it's a gift that I have when it comes to just uh, oratory and speaking. And if it wasn't for the internet, I probably would not have discovered it the way that I did. So thank God for the internet. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing. This is what, you know, when I teach people how to speak, you know, it's keeping in mind mm. that it is a conversation. And if you can talk right. to people as if you're in the same, you know, down the pub with your mates, because your audience is a friend, if you treat them as a friend, you know, that's that's, right. that's really helpful. Just a bit more energy and, and performance and stuff. Now, the other thing mm. I was curious about, because people do TEDx talks, but they don't do four of them in quick succession. And I was like, that's really unusual. Like they sort of like space them out or they'll have like, so why did you choose to do like so many in such quick succession? Well, I was, it was just a massive action plan. It was really just get my name out there and get people to know me. So this, those Ted talks happened in, let's see the, I did it. It was late 2015. Then I did two, almost back to back in 2016. And then the other one was, I think maybe 2017, 17 or 18. So yeah, they did happen pretty quickly. So the first one, I had just simply, actually the first three, those three that all happened within about four months, I had applied for them months or maybe even a year in advance. So, I mean, you know how the TED Talks work a lot of times. I mean, they're independently organized, but they all kind of work on a similar timeline in that they announce we're having a talk, apply if you want, here's the thing. And I applied for a bunch of them, but I didn't hear anything from anybody for months. So I forgot that I even applied. But then I just got all these responses all at the same time. Like, Uh, congratulations, you're speaking to this one. Congratulations, you're speaking to this one. uh, So they all happened so quick. So the first two, they were actually both down here in South Florida, like within driving distance. And I prepared for both of those for months in advance. But the third one, the one, the two months confidence one was in Las Vegas and they didn't reach out to me. I don't know. I, I guess they just didn't have as much of a committee, but I gave that talk in early April of 2016, but they didn't reach me until February of that same year. So wow. it was only 60 days out. It was less than 60 days. They told me, hey, you've been selected to speak at this event. And they said, all right, well, if you fly out here, we'll get you a hotel room, et cetera, et cetera. And I stayed at the Cosmopolitan on a strip, beautiful hotel. And if you go to Vegas, that's the place to stay. Anyway, oh. I had like less than a month really to get that one together. And I had to, I, I said, I wasn't passing up on that opportunity because I understood, I've always understood, I've always had an eye for marketing and mm-hmm. selling myself. And I knew that a TED talk was a great way to sell myself. And I know every TED talk that I give is another opportunity. If one of these talks kind of catches fire, the whole world can know me just off this one TED talk, you know? Yeah. So I was, anytime I got an opportunity to give one, I will go and give it. And that one went great. It was just that um, the way it happened to answer your question here is that they just, the responses came in quickly the way that they did. And I'm not going to say no. And my thing to people I say all the time is say yes until you have to say no. So when it it. comes to marketing and selling yourself, just keep saying yes until your calendar's so full that you got to start turning people down. So that's what was, that was my mindset. Now I've got one more question before I go into some, a few standard questions. So how you've mentioned metaphors 
how important are stories in your talks and your videos and in your teaching and working with people? Do you use them a lot? Oh, oh yes, it's 95% of the job is <laughs> the storytelling. So when I give um, any kind of keynotes, when I give keynotes, I have some like standard keynotes that I give. Everything is framed from a story. So I tell the story first, then I kind of explain the point and then I tell them how to apply it. So I go story point application. And what I tell people about stories, Sarah, is that people are going to forget most of the information that you give them, right? even though you have to have it. They're not going to remember it, most of what you say. I, I tell I give a keynote on Tuesday. I say by Saturday, you're going to forget everything I said here today. But I, they, they, had, they paid me to do this. So I had to get I got to get information anyway. But when it comes to story, people don't forget stories. People remember your stories if they're good and you tell them well. And the story will trigger the remembrance of the information. So that's why I like story so much. And I always like to use story because story narrative, human beings are wired to fire, follow narrative. So it's much easier to keep people's attention when you tell them a story than if you give them a bunch of information, even if the information is good. And the other thing is, as a speaker, it's, and you can probably speak to this too, it's much easier for me to remember what I'm going to say if I just got to remember what stories to tell, then I have to remember a bunch of information to give you. I forget information too, but if I know the story, then the story helps me remember the information. Absolutely. Couldn't have said it better myself, that. Brilliant. Now, I'm going to um, circle back to talk about how, where people can find out more about you, what you've got going mm -hmm. on. But before I do that, I just have a few standard questions, which I ask all my guests. Um, okay. The first one, this is the speaking club. What's the best thing that speaking has done for you? Hmm. The best thing to speak, you mean speaking as a business or speaking period? Speaking period. The best thing that speaking has done for me is allowed me to uh, talk through my ideas and uh, frameworks to the point that I have mastered them and I can say I am the best at the things that I talk about and I can translate that into business. That's interesting. So it's, it's actually helped you formulate those and, and work yeah. out the, ah, cool. I like that. I haven't had that. The more before. I talk about it, the better I get at it. Yeah. Cool. Okay. And the other thing that I ask guests, because and I, I'd be interested to see what your answer is to this. Um, have you had a speaking gig? which is you just like, oh my God, that was so bad. I want to forget about it. Has that happened to you? And uh, how did you react to it? I never had one that was so bad that I felt you no know, bad about myself, but I've had ones where I knew the topic wasn't quite the right match, but I might've did it anyway, because I wanted to get on the stage. Maybe I wanted to get the video. Maybe I wanted the fee <laughs> or whatever, or the opportunity was there. And I said, I might as well take it. So I've had those where it wasn't quite the right type topic match. But I never had one, especially when I'm talking about my my wheelhouse topics. No, never. Okay, cool. But if mm. you had, I bet you would have just carried on anyway and got back on the horse. Because you I Absolutely. reckon that's yeah. I was uh, to tell you a, a quick story there, we had time. I was yeah. just talking to a speaker uh, just the other day. A speaker was uh, doing a gig. I was not at the gig, but they were telling me after the gig that the the client was the client felt like they didn't touch on all the points that the client wanted the speaker to touch on. The speaker was uh, upset with themselves about the mm -hmm. fact that they felt like they hadn't um, done what the client wanted. And I was explaining to them the same thing you just said, like, listen, this is just, it's kind of like the coach yelling at you at halftime. Like you gotta, you can't go in the second half of the game still worried about that. You're not gonna play well in the second half either. And you just got to take that as feedback and then you move on and you get to the, you get to the next play. You have to have that. And I come from the sports world. So this is a mindset that is already ingrained in me. 
that you can't hold on to yesterday's game because there's another game tomorrow. So I've always been in that mentality, but this is the reason why I think why some people like to bring in former athletes because we have these things wired in us that we can teach the non-athletes that they can learn to use. Yeah, absolutely. That's brilliant. Exactly mm. that. That's why I asked the question because some people have had shocking, but they've come back. You know, you know, I, I don't, you're probably aware of NLP, like there's no failure, there's only feedback. And that is the, the way That's to right. approach it all for sure. What's the book that you've read that's had most impact on your life and why? Oh, that's easy. 48 Laws of Power, Robert Greene. That's my so favorite book of all time. 48 what? 48 40... Laws, Laws of Power ah, by Robert Greene. You familiar I with it? I haven't heard of that. No. You've never heard of it? Wow. No. Robert Greene has about five or six books. So he wrote The 33 Strategies of War, The Art of Seduction, The 50th Law, Mastery, The Laws of Human Nature. So his books are all human psychology. And that's my that's my thing human psychology so i love reading those kind of books and yeah i guess you could say my stuff is all human psychology too that's my wheelhouse so that book is i mean the title says it all <laughs> that's literally what it is so that book came out around 1999 and it really picked up steam and very popular in um entertainment circles is popular in the sports world popular in hip-hop i'm surprised you haven't heard of robert green no, though. He's, no. he's been around for a long time cool okay and so why did it have such a big impact on you well, I remember it actually when I first saw it. Now, I come from the era, Sarah, and I think you are too, when you couldn't just go on Amazon and order a book and have it in two days. You had to actually go to the bookstore. So that's the era that I come from. So I would go to uh, my Borders bookstore in Philadelphia, where I'm from, and I would go to the human, I would go to two sections, the sports section and the human psychology section. I would always look at those books. And now they call, they have actually have personal development sections now, but back then they didn't have that. So I would go to the human psychology section, just browse the, you know, the, you see the spines of the books. Yeah. And I saw this one that said the 48 laws of power. I said, that's an interesting title. I want power. Let me see what this book is about. So I opened it. <laughs> I, I picked it up and I looked at the back cover. So on the back cover, they did it really, um, it was really well designed. He actually had all 48 chapters listed on the back cover of the book. So I'm browsing at it and I'm looking, and he has these laws. Law number one, do this. Law number two, do that. And there's all these different laws. And it's very, it's very Machiavellian. Are you familiar with Machiavelli? Yeah, yeah, all right, yeah. So, so he has a law like law number 15, crush your enemy totally. Uh, <laughs> law number one, uh, never upset the master. Uh, law number four, conceal your intentions. Uh, law number 23, recreate yourself. And there's all these laws that are kind of like, it's kind of like a, it's kind of like a spy guide. It's almost like you feel like you're in a the military. They're just teaching you these, these tricks of the trade and how to be in a way that you can have more power. And I'm like, man, this is interesting because everything it was saying, I was like, actually, that's a good idea. But I did, <laughs> but I wanted to know why, why do it? Why are you saying this? It was another law, always say less than necessary. Another law was you know, learn to use people. Uh, another law is whenever you are trying to appeal to somebody, appeal to their selflessness never to their mercy or to their gratitude and there was and then the one that really caught my eye was interaction with boldness interaction with boldness law number 28 and i'm all oh, this is all on the back of the book so then i opened it and i started looking through the chapter and i started reading through the chapter and he gave his, his like a quick little explanation of why he's why the law is the law and then he goes on to explain it and i read through a little bit of chapter 28 and I said, this guy is speaking my language. I, I have to read this book. And I bought the book immediately. And I've read that book probably a hundred times. I got the audio book. I listened to it as well. And Robert Greene is absolutely my favorite author. So why that book had an impact on me? Because it, it spoke to a lot of ways that I already thought, but I could not have put it into words. 
the way that he did. He's this guy. He's an incredible writer. So again, I'm, I'm shocked that you never heard of him. I understand if you hadn't read him, but I'm surprised you never heard of him. I'll check him out yeah. for sure. Uh, next question. What's the best bit of business advice you've had and why? Ooh, the best bit of business advice I've had and why? Hmm. Nobody's ever asked me that, even though a lot of people should. The best advice, I would have to go back to Robert Kiyosaki is where it started. And uh, he said, well, allegorically, he said it through his book. Don't work for money. Mm-hmm. Find ways to make money work for you. And I didn't quite know what he meant when he said that. But as I kept reading through the book, I started to understand, okay, here's what people are doing in the, on the other side of town that I've never seen before. Because clearly they're doing something different with their money than what the people where I'm from are doing with theirs. So it opened my mind is the, the biggest thing it did. It wasn't, any, it wasn't just any one single thing he said. It was just the whole concept. Okay, brilliant. Yeah. And last question then. It's interesting. You might have already mentioned them. I don't know. If you could have any mentor and they can be alive or dead, fictional or non-fictional, who would you choose and why? Only one person? Just one. Just one. Hmm. It could be different tomorrow, but I'm just like, off the top of your head, who would you choose now? Well, I've done, I've made five um, pieces of material where I talked about my virtual mentors and I'll tell you all five are and I'll tell you the one. So the five were uh, Michael Jordan, uh, Damon Dash, you know who that is? You know Damon Dash is? No, I don't think so. You familiar with Jay-Z? Yes. The, the rapper. Yeah. Okay, so Damon Dash was Jay-Z's business partner. Oh, they okay, were cool. They were business partner. He was the CEO with Jay-Z. So Damon Dash, uh, number two, Jay-Z, uh, 50 Cent, and Sean uh, Puff Daddy Combs. You know who Puff Daddy is? P. Diddy? Yep, absolutely. Yep, yeah. yep. So he was the first one that I did was Puff Daddy, so I'll go with him. And the reason uh-huh. why is because uh, he is a, he's been a, a great businessman. He's a person who knows how to excite a crowd. He knows how to move people to do their best work. He is a, a hustler. And even though he didn't play sports, he did his through music. You know, I have music coursing through my veins. My father is a musician, so I grew up with music uh-huh. deep in me, even though I never played sport. I mean, music. I went to sports. My dad was a musician. My dad's not even that tall. So I guess that's why he moved to music. <laughs> but uh, I would go with I would go with Puff Daddy, just his, his business mind, his ability to move people to do their best work, the fact that he's a hustler. He's a long game player. A lot of similarities in mindset between his stuff and mine. I think I can learn a lot from him just about and how to create excitement. The guy knows how to create excitement and get people, people that work for him excited and get the crowd excited. That's how he's able to create sales. And a lot of people sold a lot of the records working with Puff Daddy. So I think he could take that, that mindset and help translate it to any area of industry. Excellent. He's, he's master of the sizzle, as they say. The, the, yes, the exactly. Yeah. That's exactly what he does. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. Listen, thank you so much for sharing all of that stuff and your story uh, with us. Mm. It's been brilliant. Where can people go to find out more about you? Where's the best place that they can go? And you know, have you got anything specifically that you wanted to share about in terms of your products or services today? Yeah, so where people can go is I am on every social platform except TikTok. I don't know how many TikTokers you got watching, but I'm on everything else. So I'm on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. We talked about YouTube a lot, but I'm on all those platforms. Just look my name up. You will see me. So whichever one you prefer. Instagram, I probably am most active because I use the Instagram stories a lot. Are you on Instagram, Sarah? Yes, I am. Yep. Okay, so I use I use Instagram probably the most actively as far as social, but I post on all platforms every single day. As far as products, I do have my book called The Third Day. Can I show uh-huh. people how they can get a copy of this? 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so this is a this is the hardcover copy, but we do have paperback as well. You can get a free copy of this book. All you had to do is cover shipping. Now, if you are Sarah, you're in the UK, right? Yep. Okay, so yep. if you're in the UK, the shipping is a little bit more. You all notice that you order mm -hmm. from America, it costs a little bit more, but the book is free. All you're going to do is cover the shipping and you just go to thirddaybook.com. So thirddaybook.com. The book is free, cover the shipping, and I've written 31 books, so we're going to take you through a funnel. I'm going to offer you more books. So you could leave that funnel with 12 books. You can leave it one. It's up to you. Somewhere in between. Cool. Brilliant. Okay, and we'll put the link in the show notes as well. And actually, the biggest audience for for speaking club is in America. So shout out to the US. Yeah, cool. Um, smashing. Right now, I have one more question. Is there anything else that you think you need to say in order to call this interview complete? No, you asked a lot of. Well, what I will say, yes, is that you asked a lot of great questions and you gave me a lot of space to tell my stories, even when they went long. So I really appreciate it. I appreciate your interviewing skills because I've, I've done a lot of media interviews, Sarah, and I, I have not been given the space to kind of tell the stories and explain them the way that you allowed me to here today. And I think a lot of people need to understand that even though this show is the speaking club, communication is not just speaking, but also listening. And you did a great job of that. So I appreciate it. Okay. Thank you very much. Well, you know, I, if it was boring, I would have stopped you. So I think it says more about you. <laughs> cool. Right. Well, thank you it. so much again for coming on the show and best of luck with everything else that you're doing, Dre. Appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. How was that for you? I'm actually really jealous of Dre. It took me until I was 40 to get access to some of the mindset tools that Dre seemed almost innately to be able to draw on as a youngster. And his attitude is brilliant. And I hope some of it has rubbed off on you. I know some of it has rubbed off on me. Uh, do go and follow Trey on YouTube. Check out his books and resources. And obviously, as I always say, if something resonated with you that he said, do let him know. Message him, find him on social media, on LinkedIn. Let him know. It's always such a nice thing when people come back to you and let you know that something you've said or, you know, something you've shared has had an impact on them. As ever, do also go and visit saraharcher.co.uk and check out my new speaking program, which is a blended version of the one-to-one -one, uh, program I normally do. I've made it more accessible, more flexible, uh, more affordable, and it's available for pre-order right now. Uh, last thing for me to say is thank you for joining me as ever, and I will be back next week. In the meantime... You know what I'm going to say? Go out, grab your life by the nuts, and get cracking. Bye-bye. Getting to practice your speaking in front of an audience is a crucial part of testing your message and developing your skills and experience as a speaker. Yet opportunities to do this in the right environment can be hard to find. Add in the chance to get expert feedback and coaching on your content structure and delivery and the opportunities are even fewer. But that's what you'll get as a member of the Speaking Club Live. Each week we'll be focusing on a different aspect of business speaking, from pitching to presenting to videos and lives. There'll be hot speak slots and you'll get the chance to practice sharing your message, your storytelling, your humor, and all the different aspects of speaking in front of me and other members. Then you'll get feedback and coaching from me and your peers so that you're moving forward on your speaking journey with accountability and support. 
If you'd like to find out more about how you can become a member of the Speaking Club Live so that you can build your confidence, improve your delivery and become a better speaker, then go to saraharcher.co.uk slash club now.